This sermon was preached by Bob G. and Sarah, head pastor of Grace and Truth in Hartsdale, New York. Grace and Truth was planted in 2002 and is seeking to reach North Yonkers and Westchester County. You can find more sermons from this series and many others at www.gntchurch.org. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Before we begin, let's have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, gracious God, we come before you this morning, Lord, thankful for the week gone by, thankful for the blessings that you've bestowed upon us. And Lord, as we come to this part of worship now where we worship you through the ministry of the Word. We pray, Father, that that the Word would come alive today. And I pray, Father, for a portion of your Holy Spirit to be upon me, to carry me through this, that as I speak today, it wouldn't be my words, but your words, Lord. Use me as a vessel and instrument for your kingdom and for your glory. I pray, dear God, that even now that you would prepare our hearts to receive from you today wondrous things from your law. I pray for the hearts that are recalcitrant here today, Lord, that you would soften them and that you would leave an openness there, dear God. I pray for our ears, O Lord, which, which are clogged so many times and we're deaf to the things of God. I pray, Father, that you would unclog our ears that we may hear from you and that, Lord, you would remove the stubborn scales from our eyes. And that we would see Jesus Christ exalted here today in our service. Lord, I, I seek you now, Lord, for great aid and great help to minister your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Every nation has a beginning. Every nation has an origin. And as Americans... We look to our origins, to our founding fathers, the names of George Washington, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson. They resound with us. We know who these people are. They are the founding fathers. They fought. They framed. They, they labored greatly. They poured out their lives and sacrificed much for the independence of the United States from Great Britain. And so we look to men, we identify men like Washington, we identify men like Franklin with the origin and birth of the U.S. Every nation has its founding fathers or father. If you go to Italy, which I went to back in the early 2000s, I remember everywhere I went was a statue of Garibaldi. Every street was named Garibaldi Way or Garibaldi Street. Because it was Garibaldi who had a a profound impact on the birth of Italy as a nation in the late 1800s. Well, so does Israel. So does the nation of Israel have a very foundational figure behind its history. They have only one founding father, and his name is Abraham. It wasn't that he fought a great war of independence. 
He didn't write a masterful constitution. He didn't. He wasn't even an intellectual man who who worked hard to fight for human freedom or you know, was was at the helm of a revolution. No, Abraham was a very critical and foundational figure because of his faith. Abraham was a man of faith. And it was upon his faith that a nation was built. And Abraham is a critical and foundational figure, not just for the identity of national Israel, but even for us as Christians. As he is not just the father of Israel, but the father of many nations, as his name states. We're about to embark on a study of the person of Abraham. And, if, and, and, and with, without reservation, I could say, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, Abraham is probably the most important person in the Bible. So much so that 14 chapters in the book of Genesis are devoted entirely to the life of Abraham. Compare that with the 11 chapters that we just completed that were devoted to about 2,000 years of history. Now, sure, Moses was the great lawgiver with the Ten Commandments. Joshua was a great military commander leading uh, Israel into Canaan and the conquest. David is the mighty and brilliant righteous king who was the foreshadow of Christ who completed Israel's conquest, destroying the Philistines. Elijah was the prophet who called fire down from heaven. But all of them would confess that Abraham was their father. And with that in mind, we need to keep this before us that Abraham is a central figure, not only in the Bible, but in the redemptive history of God. It is absolutely critical to understand who Abraham is. If you understand the life and the faith and the person of Abraham, you will understand the rest of the Bible. You will understand the Old Testament and the birth of Israel. But you will further understand the New Testament. How many times the New Testament refers back to Abraham? There's something very fundamental, something very important, very significant in the life of Abraham. And that is his faith. And that is because it is the faith of Abraham. It is the faith of Abraham that justified him and made him right. It is the same faith that we put on Jesus Christ. And so today we're going to dive into this in chapter 12. And we're going to look at the life of Abraham and his call. Abraham's call and the beginning of his journey of faith. So turn with me if you will. I'd like to look at Genesis 12 verse 1. And let's read. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Let's, let's begin to look at this. There's going to look at this in three particular aspects. One, the calling of Abram. Two, the promises of God. And three, the obedience of Abram. First, let's look at the call of Abram. 
let's examine who was Abram? Who was this guy that God called? What was particularly uh, um, significant about Abram? Why, why does God call Abram? Is he some super righteous person? Is he some super uh, uh, religious person? Like, what made Abram stand out? Here is uh, uh, hundreds, if not thousands of years of history past the flood. Abram is of the descendant in the line of Shem. And, and, and here he is in the godly line. But what, what particularly about Abram stands out that God chooses him, that God chooses to reveal himself to him? What made Abram special? Well, let's look at this. First of all, where was Abram at when God called him? We need to understand where he was at by looking back into chapter 11 in some of the texts that link us from the Tower of Babel to Genesis 12. Last we left off in Genesis, we were in Babel, and we were examining uh, the dispersion of the nations, right? Uh, chapter 10 gave us a table of the nations after, uh, after the flood. Chapter 11 tells us about the unity of humanity and their rebellion against God, and God disperses people all over the world, creating different nations. And then when you get to chapter 11, there's this linking. First, in, in, in verses um, 11 through 26, we have another genealogy giving us from Shem right down to Terah, who is the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, verse 26. So we get this idea first and foremost that there's a link between uh, Noah, and, and, and Sh- particularly through his son Shem, right down to Abram. There's the godly line through Shem, as was promised. But then secondly, in verse 27 of chapter 11, we need to read these verses. We get a little background into the understanding of who Abram was. Verse 27 says this. Now these are the generations of Terah. Now this is another Toledot. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Now Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, and the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, she had no child. And so first we get this idea of the, of the family breakdown of, of Abram, that his father Terah was a, a man who had three sons. They married, they dwelt in Ur of the Chaldeans. Now that's important, hold that thought for a minute. Now look at verse 31. Then Terah took Abram his son, and Lot his son of Haran his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and then Terah died in Haran. Well, the first important thing we need to know about Abram is that he and his family uh, were originally dwell, dwelling or lived in the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, this is very important and significant in our understanding to understand the background of who Abram was. Now, not much was known about Ur of the Chaldeans until the late, uh, until the 1920s and 1930s uh, when Sir, Woolley, Sir Leonard Woolley had excavated the city in, in the 1930s as an archaeologist. And, and a tremendous amount was revealed. There was a big city. Now, this is going back to ancient Babylon. This is the same area where the Tower of Babel was built. And Ur was a major city in the ancient world. It was a big city, big city walls, many dwelling places, many houses. I mean, it was huge. But one of the most important things about Ur that was discovered in this excavation in the 1920s and 1930s is that it was, it was a central uh, uh, religious city. It was a patron city 
of the moon goddess Sin. Not sin like sinning against God, but the same word, S-I-N, was the name of this moon goddess. And Ur was the capital city and the central place of worship. There was a huge ziggurat, a huge pyramid temple that was built in the center of the city. And at the very pinnacle of the temple was this this room that was plated with silver and and shone from the moonlight at night and, and sacrifices were offered there. In fact, in Sir Leonard Woolley's excavations, they discovered that human sacrifices were offered up to this pagan deity in a massive grave with 75 dead bodies found of humans that were offered in sacrifice to this this false, this pagan deity. This is the context. This is the background from which Abram lived. This is where he was called from. He and his father dwelt in this city. They obviously had some money, they were well off, they lived in a major city, Uh, but not only that, they were exposed to, and in fact probably and, and, and indeed did participate in this pagan worship. We know this because in Joshua 24, 2, Uh, when Joshua is exhorting Israel to come into the land of Canaan and inherit the land, he he actually speaks, inspired by the Holy Spirit, referencing back to Abram and Terah. And he says to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abram and Nahor, and they served other gods. They served other gods. So who was Abram when God called him? He was a pagan. He was an idolater. He served other gods. He was just like everyone else in his city. He was was probably an outstanding citizen, a a, a well-to-do man, had money, and he was a good religious man. He probably paid his dues, and it was required of the citizens of earth to, to, to tend to the temple. He probably himself offered sacrifices to the moon, God has seen, and it's from this context that God calls him. Clearly, God called Abraham from spiritual darkness. What do we learn from this? We learn that God, why did God choose Abram? For no good reason. There is absolutely nothing good in Abram that God called him. He was no different than any other person in the world at the time. There was nothing about Abram that that called God's attention to him other than his own sovereign will and decree. That is what we learn here. It was God's sovereign choice to call them. It was Abram who God set his divine favor on. And it was Abram who God selected to be the person with whom he would execute his plan of salvation. God's choice had nothing to do with Abram. He didn't foresee down the tunnel of time that Abraham would believe him and chose him, no. He didn't know something about Abraham. He wasn't that Abraham was a humble person or a good person, no. There was nothing. Abraham was a sinner, just like you and just like me. There was nothing about Abraham that was attractive to God. It was God's choice. He called Abraham. He set Abraham apart, and he gave Abraham a new heart to believe in him, just like he does with us. Not only was he a pagan, but he was an old man. And his wife was barren. What good and what purpose would he serve for building a nation and executing God's plan? That's exactly the point. 
God doesn't need mighty people and strong people and healthy people to get his plan across. God usually and almost consistently throughout redemptive history chooses the weak. He chooses barren women. He chooses the nobodies. Don't we learn that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? Does God choose the mighty, the strong? No, he chooses the weak, the nobodies, the nothings to, con- to bring to nothing the things that are. So God not only chooses this pagan, but he chooses a pagan a weak pagan, an old man with a, wither, with a wife who's withered up in her womb is barren. This is who God chooses to execute his plan. And this is something we'll see recur throughout the Bible. And so it is with us. We come to saving knowledge of God and, and when we're born again and we come to faith in Christ. And it's not, God didn't choose us because of anything. We didn't merit his sovereign grace. No more than Abram earned or merited God's grace. It's grace. It's unmerited favor. That's exactly what is grace. Secondly, we've got to look at his call to the promised land. We read in 1131 that Terah took his family out of Ur and started off to Canaan. However, they didn't make it. In fact, we read they settled in Haran. The word settle there means they settled for a long time. They pitched their tent. They lived there. Haran was their home. Uh, apparently, so, so this gets kind of confusing because we look at the call in chapter 12.1. It says, the Lord said to Abraham, go from the country and your kindred of your father's house, the land that I will show you. And so we, we, we start to ask our questions. If, if Terah was already on his way to Canaan, as we read in chapter 11, and Abram gets the call in chapter 12, is this chronological? There, there seems to be some confusion here. Was, was terror already deciding to go that way and God just kind of affirmed it? Well, we have to look deeper into the Bible to kind of understand and, 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 and reconcile this somewhat paradox or confusion. In Acts chapter 7, verses 2 and 4, when Stephen is giving his testimony before the Jewish Sanhedrin at his trial, he says, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into the land in which you are now living. Well, the answer is simply this. When Abram and his father lived back in Or, God revealed himself to Abram and said, go, you, and leave your father's country, leave everything, and go to the land that I will show you. And so we understand at this point that when Terah moved in chapter 11 towards Canaan and stopped in Haran, that, that Abram already received the call. And so what we understand here is that Abram convinced his father, he says, he must have sat down, had a good talk with his father, and said, listen, dad, we got to do this. He must have convinced Terah that he saw God, had a revelation from God. Somehow Terah was convinced and went, but when they got to Haran, which was another major city, evidently Terah did not have the faith to continue. He doubted, he questioned his son's integrity, and they settled there. Abram, being a good son, honored his father, stayed there. When his father died, Abram picks up his bags and heads off to Canaan. That is the most easiest way we can reconcile this. The one thing we have to look at here, though, which is most important, is that God's call to Abram is a radical call. 
He's not asking him something simple. God reveals himself to him. But look at the call. He says to Abram in verse 1, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Notice the type of call this is. He's asking him to do three things. To break from his country. Leave your country. Leave the land that you're familiar with. Leave the place that you grew up in. The place that you love. The nation that you've been accustomed to. Remember, the nations had dispersed. And here, each nation had settled into their own form. But then your kindred, right? It's not just your nation. I want you to leave your kindred. I want you to leave the culture. I want you to leave the place that you're familiar and comfortable with. I want you to leave the people that you identify with. I want you to break from that completely. And then finally he says, I want you to leave your father's house. Leave your family. I want you to leave everything and make a complete break from everything you know. And I want you to follow me. In fact, in the initial call, he doesn't even tell him where he's going. He just says, go to the land I will show you. This is amazing. He's asking Abram to renounce everything he knows, to renounce his identity in this world, to abandon his culture, to abandon his nation and his family. We can't imagine such a radical call. Yet, this is echoed in the gospel. Does Jesus require anything less of us? What does Jesus tell us in Matthew 10.37? He says this, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Ultimately, whether it was Abram's call or whether it's our call, the whole point is this. God asks us to entrust our lives entirely to Him. God asks us to basically stop trusting in all the things that we are familiar with and comfortable with, to stop trusting in the the things that are so common to us and to put our full confidence in Him. That requires faith, and that's exactly what faith is. Faith is trusting in God. And it's not just trusting God in certain areas, it's trusting God in everything. The call was radical because the promises, as we will see, were very radical. If God is going to bless and move in our lives, if we're going to experience the salvation of God and the moving of God in our lives, then we have to make a clean break from the world and put our trust entirely in Him. Because at the end of the day, everything else will let you down. The call to be a Christian is a radical call. It calls us to forsake our identity in this world, find our identity in Christ. It calls us to give our ultimate allegiance and our supreme allegiance to Him and Him alone. Everything else comes secondary. The problem is, is this is so contrary This is so contrary to the way most preachers preach today. So many preachers who just are peddling the gospel. There are preachers who get in churches and and, and basically want to be salesmen and, and try to beg you to become a Christian and they want to paint this rosy picture. You ever... You ever look for a car advertising? Everybody here have a shop for a car. You open up the newspaper and you get these ads, right? And, and, and all of a sudden there's this exceptional deal. No money down. No payments for a year. No taxes. Uh, uh, 
$100 a month and you'll drive away with a brand new Honda Accord. But you don't read the fine print on the bottom, right? That, that fine print, which is the, the details, is, in, is so small you need a magnifying glass to read. And you don't find that until you get out in the showroom and you're halfway in and you're suckered in and then you sign a contract and then you find out afterwards, most likely. And that's what a lot of preachers are trying to do today. They want to they wanna sell this gospel. They want to sell Christ in this blazing fashion. Look at all these benefits you'll get. But the truth of the gospel, the radical call of Christ, they put in the fine print and, and leave it to you to find out later when, it, you know, when, you're, when you're like, huh, what, what did I sign up for? That's why I prefer to present the truth. I present, as a preacher, my job is to faithfully present the gospel to you. Jesus never, never lied or minced words with the people of his time, which is why they killed him. People said, well, we want to follow you, Lord. We want to follow you. Oh, you want to follow me? He said, okay, birds have a nest and, and, and foxes have dens, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You really want to follow me? He discouraged people from following me. But one man said, okay, Lord, I'll come follow you. Let me just go home and, and, and have a funeral for my, for my dead father. Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. Come on, follow me. Could you imagine what a radical claim that was? That was the words of Jesus. He didn't sit there and say, okay, well, listen, why don't you go home, have your funeral, I'll wait here for you. No, the call of Jesus is radical. The call to be a Christian is radical. God wants us to break ties with everything to give our full allegiance to Him. That is what faith is. It's entrusting our lives entirely in God's hands. The word faith can be broken down into an acronym, forsaking all, I trust Him. Well, let's look at the promises of God. God calls Abram to make this radical decision, to make a major step of faith, but He gives him great promises, right? Christ calls us to make a radical commitment to Him too, but Christ also gives us wonderful promises. But let's look at the promises of Abraham and see how that ties into the promises that come upon us as believers in Christ. God makes uh, wonderful promises here. Look in verse 2. He says, and, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And, in, and him who dishonors you, I'll curse. And, you, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What, a, what amazing promises here. There are seven promises in all that are being made here. And five times the word blessed is used. Clearly, God wants to cascade and pour out wave after wave His blessings and benevolence and goodness upon Abram. He's, he's basically telling him, get up and go, and I will pour out my abundant blessings on you. God's making an unconditional promise. He's not saying, I'll bless you if you do this, this, and this. I'll bless you only if you're good enough and you, and you, you listen to me all the time. He's, this is an unconditional, unwavering promise from God. And God does not lie. God does not waver. God does not change His mind. And so He, he makes these tremendous promises upon Abram. And I think we should take time to examine some of these promises. They're, they can be broken up in two ways. One in personal blessings and second in global blessings. The first one is in personal blessings. God promises Abram three things. First, he promises to make of him a great nation. Now here is this 75-year-old man with a barren wife. 
How are you going to make a nation of him? How in the world is that going to happen? This, this defies human reasoning. For all intents and purposes, it's impossible. But Abram had great faith. He trusted that God would do what he said he would do. And later, Abram would waver his faith and try to, to bring about this plan in his own wisdom, using Hagar as a surrogate mother. But when Abram was 100 years old, God would give him a son miraculously through Isaac. Through this son Isaac, a great nation would come. Isaac would give birth to Jacob and Esau. And Jacob uh, would then have 12 sons who would form the 12 tribes of Israel. As we get to the end of Genesis, 72 people of the clan of the nation of Israel go to Egypt during the famine. And in Exodus chapter 1, they're in the millions. So much so that it's a threat to the Pharaoh who forgot Joseph. And he says, we've got to do something about these people. They're multiplying like crazy. They'll overthrow us. We need to enslave them. And then we get to the Exodus account. Oh, God indeed blessed Abram. But you see, here's the key. It wasn't there for him to see. You know, many times God makes promises to to us in the Bible. We can't see them. They're not tangible. We can't touch them at the point. But we have to have faith to see them afar off and trust that God will fulfill His Word. Amen? Secondly, He says, I will bless you. Now the blessing here is used in a narrow sense. It's, it's referring to material blessing. Abram would receive great material blessings from God. When he leaves Haran, we, we learn that he leaves with livestock, he leaves with servants, um, he goes to Egypt and, and Pharaoh sends him out with servants and gold and, and treasures. And, and, and I mean, all through his journeys, I mean, he had 341 armed men ready to go to war in chapter 14. You don't have 341 armed men in your company unless you're an extremely wealthy man. You must be an extremely wealthy person in the ancient world to have 341 armed men ready to wage war for you. So much so that Genesis 24:35 affirms this when his son Eleazar goes um, to seek a wife for Isaac and Rebekah and he goes to uh, uh, um, her, her household. He says, the Lord has greatly blessed my master and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. This affirms and confirms that God tremendously blessed Abram. Now we have to be careful because sometimes um, people will take this out of context and think that God wants all his people to be filthy rich and to, be, and to prosper materially and that somehow if you're poor it's because you're a bad Christian and you're, you're a sinner and and you're not good enough to inherit God's material blessings. But well, that's not true. God made this unconditional promise to Abram. And it was a very particular promise for building and, and, and acquiring the wealth to build a nation. Thirdly, he says, I will make your name great. This is placed in, in direct contrast with Nimrod in the Tower of Babel. Remember in the Tower of Babel? Let's build this tower so that our names will be great. Right? The, the whole purpose and intent behind building Babel was to be famous, to have a great name. And here we see Abram, this old man, and God says, I will make your name great, Abram. 
I will bless you. No, it wasn't achieved by human striving, but as it received as a gift from God, Abram's fame would, would go on. It was a legacy that would have widespread influence for generations. Think about it. The three major religions in the world, the three religions of the book, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, which constitute basically majority of the human race, all find their common origin to Abraham. Right? The Muslims claim Abraham as their father through Ishmael. The Jews find their national heritage and origin in Abraham as the father of Isaac. And as Christians, we find our common heritage and origin back to Abraham as the father of faith. Abraham's fame and his name is very great. Even till today, a majority of the world is still talking about Abraham. Trust me, when God makes a promise, he keeps it. Amen? But why would God seek to do this for one individual? Why would God choose Abram to bless him alone with all these tremendous blessings? What's so special? Special about him. We learned already nothing. Well, what does God want to do? Spoil the guy rotten? What about everybody else in the world? Why do you want to spoil this one guy rotten and give him so much and not give to everyone else? Well, the answer is in the fourth clause here, right? It says, and I will make, uh, uh, I'm sorry, in verse 3, it says, in the end of verse 2, it says, I will bless you and make your name great. And here's the fourth clause right here. So, right, that you will be a blessing. The whole purpose of why God blesses Abraham is so. It's because I want you to be a blessing to others. And this is important. It wasn't merely to spoil Abraham. It wasn't merely to enrich his life and show special favoritism. But as Walt Kaiser points out, everything he was given was a gift to be shared for the enrichment of others. And that is the same thing with the blessings God gives you. If God has blessed you with anything in this life, it's not for you personally. It's so that you could be a blessing to others. That's why stinginess is such a sin. Because God is not stingy. He's given us all things in Christ. And when we're stingy, we're not reflecting God. We're reflecting the devil. We're reflecting selfishness. God blesses us so that we could pour out that blessing to other people. And this is further uh, um, given to us um, in the next verse. It says, I will, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So there's another two components to this. This is a global mission. This is global blessing. Abraham's not to be blessed by himself, but his blessing is to be uh, used to bless the whole world. Every family on the earth will receive a blessing through Abram. Notice two things here. First of all, is that the blessing of Abram actually divides the human race. It's through the blessing of Abram there will be two different classes of human beings who oppose each other and what distinguishes them is how they respond to Abram and his God. Those who bless him will in turn be blessed and those who dishonor him will come under the curse of God. Now this is realized, we see this in Abram's life when Pharaoh seeks to take 
uh, and kidnaps Sarah as, her, as his concubine, God brings a great, great curse upon Pharaoh that eventually he sends Sarah out. The same thing with Abimelech. Uh, everybody, uh, 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 when, when, the, when the nations are at war and Sodom and Gomorrah and Abram goes in, I mean, God just gives Abram tremendous success. Anyone that opposes him comes under God's curse. But all those who stand with Abram are blessed. Even Lot. Lot was blessed until the day he chose to dishonor Abram by, by seeking to go his own way. And even Lot, who was a righteous man, came under a curse in, in a material sense for not identifying and submitting and honoring Abram as the older, as the elder of the family. This would be further realized in the life of national Israel. Right? You look through the history of Israel, every nation that dealt poorly with Israel paid for it. I mean, look at Nazi Germany and the attack they had against Israel in the 1940s and the Holocaust. Well, Germany paid dearly and came under a tremendous curse of God for what they did to the physical seed of Abram. But in the same way, this is ultimately realized in Christ. You see, the promise to bless all nations is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who is the true seed, the singular seed of Abraham. It is through Jesus Christ that, that He will be a light to the Gentiles, that all nations, all families, every tongue, every tribe, every nation will come to God through Jesus Christ. And so those who come to Christ and honor Him will receive the fullness of blessing upon God. I mean, Christ gives the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, blessed are the poor, blessed are the humble, blessed are the meek. The blessings of God flow upon those who believe in Jesus Christ, the true seed of Abraham. And all those who dishonor Christ come under the curse and judgment of God. You see, just as um, this promise was made to Abraham, it gets its full... Abraham is a prototype. He's a prototype of Christ. Galatians 3.16 confirms that in Paul's writing. Whoever dishonors Christ comes under the curse. Whoever honors Him... God blesses him. John 5.23 confirms this. When Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, he says, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Well, let me look at this in an interesting way. Abram believed in God's promises. And because of his faith, he received the blessings and fulfilled his mission to be a blessing to others. The Bible tells us in Galatians 3.29... That if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's children. And if so, the fullness of God's promises and blessings have come upon you. 2 Corinthians 1.2.20 says this, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him we utter our amen to God for His glory. The point is this, many times Christians those of us who are believers in Christ languish in despair. We languish in depression. There are times when we get beat up. There are times when the circumstances of life come upon us. There are times when we're discouraged. There are times when we might find just hopelessness in our, maybe in our home or in, or in the world or in our job and, and, and whatever situation we are. But we have to remember something, that the fullness of the promises of Abraham and the blessings of Abraham have come upon us in Christ Jesus. We need to think about that and apply it to our lives. 
So many times we're in despair. We need to redirect our focus on the promises of God towards us as believers in Christ. And we've got to remember, it's not just the promises themselves, but who's making the promise? Not the car salesman, right? God. God who does not lie, and He's making a promise. And if He makes a promise, He keeps it. Why do we fail to trust in God? Why do we fail to believe in His promises? We need to preach to ourselves so many times instead of talking to ourselves and remind ourselves of the great promises of God towards us that He will never leave or forsake us, Joshua 1.5. That nothing shall separate us from the, from the love of God. Read Romans chapter 8, 37 through 39 that we're more than conquerors in Him. What about in Jeremiah 29.11 when, when the Lord says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for good and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Are these promises made in vain? No, they're for us, the children of Abraham, in whom the blessings of God have come. We need to rest our confidence in promises like Isaiah 40, 31. That they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not be faint. There's little books that you can get from CBD or any Christian bookstore, the promises of God, and it gives, there's so many promises of God in the scriptures directed towards us as believers. We need to take hold of them and claim them and believe that these promises are given for us and encourage our hearts. Instead of languishing in despair and discouragement, sometimes we're so, we're so down on ourselves, we beat ourselves up so bad, we need to rest We need to rest in the promises and blessings of God and and think about the bright future ahead of us. Abraham couldn't see the promises immediately. It didn't happen. Abraham got the promise when he was 75. Isaac wasn't born until he was 100. That was 25 years till the promise was fulfilled in its initial stage. God's timing is not our timing, guys. Just because something doesn't happen right away doesn't mean God doesn't have a plan. doesn't mean God's going to bless you. We have to be patient and wait on the Lord and trust and believe and never give up hope and never give up. Why? Because God is true. May every man be found a liar and God be found true. Amen? You know, it's sad because so many times, instead of trusting in the promises of God, we believe in the lying promises of the world. The world is always making us promises. Well, if you sin, you'll be happy. If you commit adultery with this person, you, you'll be much happier. And if you, if, you do, uh, uh, if you steal this money, you'll be much happier. And if, and if you uh, 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 abandon uh, your church and, 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 and go to the world because things aren't working out, you'll, you'll, be much, you'll be free from all that nonsense. You'll be much happier. It's the lying promises of the world. It's Satan's lies to, to, to get you to doubt and to fear God and turn away from Him. You need to shut it all out and trust in God and His, His promises. Amen? Lastly, the obedience of Abram. When God called Abram to make this radical choice and called him to leave all he knew, how did he respond? What did Abram do? He believed God. He took him at His word. And he stepped out in faith and trusting himself to the Lord by obeying his command, having full confidence in God to fulfill his word. The Bible 
celebrates and focuses on this great faith of Abraham in Hebrews 11:8. It says, "By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place that he was to receive an inheritance. He went out, not knowing where he was going." And then in verse 10 it says, "For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God." He had no idea where he was going, but he knew. He knew where God was, and he knew God's promises. There's an old saying, I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. I want you to notice, though, Abraham makes no excuses, although he could have. He could say, hey, listen, I'm 75 years old. You know, I got, I got, I'm set. listen, I got everything here. What am I going to do? What if I go there and something doesn't work out? I'm stuck with those miserable Canaanites. They might, they might corrupt me and my family. This is crazy. I'm too old. I might get a heart attack on the way. He could have made a million excuses not to go. He could have sat there uh, uh, counseling within his mind, doubting and casting doubt on God's Word, but he went. He believed God had a call for him and he did it. Too many times we think about things too much and then we, we waste our life away. He didn't procrastinate. He just went. You know, so many times in our lives, I find so many times people are stagnant and stuck in their lives. They, they never get anywhere because they never take a bold step of faith. My grandfather came here in the 19, well, I think it was 1915 with his, father, his mother from Italy. And back then, Italy was a very poor country. And yeah, there were quite a few people that made the trek to come to the U.S., but there were a lot of people who stayed in, in Europe. There were a lot of people. I give my, my, grand, my grandfather great credit for what he did and, his, and my great-grandma. Why? Because think about it. You left your country. You left your language. You left your culture. You left your family. You left everything you knew and got on that boat having no idea what was on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. But you trusted that somehow it was going to be better. And the people that made that decision, some of you here have immigrated to this country. You know what I'm talking about. Some of you here today have immigrated to this country. You know what I'm talking about. You had confidence. But if you never stepped out in faith, if you never took that chance, you would have never known what it was, the blessing, to live in the United States of America. So many of us are so unwilling to take bold steps for God, and we never experience the fullness of God's blessing in our life. Some of us might just be stagnant and go nowhere in life because we never, ever, we always think about things, we doubt, we have fear, and we, we, instead of trusting in God and believing in God, we're always cowering in fear and doubt and, and, and having these, these uh, council meetings in our mind trying to debate things. God calls us to take bold steps of faith. Could you imagine if Abraham didn't go to Canaan? True faith always results in obedience. You cannot divorce the two. When God calls us and when God commands us, we listen, we obey. The real crux of the issue is this. Why did Abraham believe? Because he knew who God was, as I keep repeating here. Sadly, we believe so many con artists in this world, but we won't believe in God. Ultimately, we have to apply this to ourselves. Where are you today? Some of you here profess faith as Christians. You say you've come to faith in Christ and you trust Him entirely for your salvation. Is that true? Sometimes we think that somehow, oh yeah, I, I trust in Christ, but 
But I gotta, I gotta add to that. I gotta, I gotta put my good works in. If I'm not a good person, and I don't, if I'm not religious enough, and I, then, then, then I won't be truly saved. Well, that's wrong. It is Christ's death and His death alone that, that, that pays the penalty for sins. There's nothing you could add to or take away from your salvation. We must trust entirely for Christ, for the forgiveness of our sins and our righteousness to stand before God. There's nothing you could do to add to it. I don't care, I don't care how good you think you are. If you're trusting in your goodness to get before God on Judgment Day, then you will be found empty-handed. You'll be found very disappointed. See, that's the gospel. Maybe some of you here don't believe. The gospel is this, is that that all of us are sinners. All of us have fallen short. Like Abram, we were all like sheep wandering, going our own way. We all uh, 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 have sinned against God. We've broken His commandments. We're criminals in the court of God. And and no matter how good you think you might be, when when judgment day comes, when you die, you stand before God and you're naked and you have no, uh, no lawyer, no defense, no appeals, no secrets, no lies, because you can't lie to God, you can't fool Him, you're going to be stand there with your sin. And God will say, depart from me, I never knew you. The Bible says in Isaiah 64, 6, that you think you're a righteous person. Your righteousness is like filthy rags in God's sight. Your best deeds, the best you could offer to God is like filthy garments in His sight. But He sends His Son, Jesus Christ, who comes and becomes a man, lives a perfect life, suffers, is murdered by the Jews and the Romans, crucified on a cross, not, not as an innocent victim, but He willingly went to the cross to die for our sins. He bore the penalty, the judgment that we deserve because of our sins. The penalty of sin. Sin deserves death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. That's why we die. And we don't just die physically. We'll die eternally and spiritually in hell unless our sins are forgiven. And that is the gospel, that Jesus took our sins upon Him and that, and that when His sins, our sins were placed on Him, God judged our sins on Christ. Well, here's the good news. If you trust in Jesus Christ, and He rose from the dead, He rose from the dead, conquering death, conquering death, conquering sin so that we could believe. And if you believe in Him and you trust in Him, your sins are forgiven. They're washed away. Clean slate. You are now not just clean, but God then makes you a righteous person. He makes you, He, he takes Christ's righteousness, His goodness, and, 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 and credits it to your account so that you could stand before God on Judgment Day with a perfect record of Jesus Christ on your record. And he'll say, well done thou good and faithful servant. Come into the joy of your master. That is the good news. That is the gospel. Have you believed that? Have you believed that? And finally, if you have believed that, if you truly today are saying, yes, I'm a Christian, I profess Christ. But then let me ask you a question. If you believe the gospel and you believe in Jesus, do you believe in what Jesus says? Do you believe what He tells us in the Word? Many times people say, yes, I believe in Jesus. He's my Lord and Savior. But they're living a life that's contrary to God's Word. Well, how could you say you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but then not believe in what He says? If you believe in God and you truly trust Him, then... Just like Abraham trusted in God and trusted in His promises, we must trust and believe in what He says. And so if the Bible says that it's a sin to have sex outside of marriage, well, who are we to question God? 
See, sadly, many of us want to go to the Bible and pick it apart. Well, I believe this one. I, li- I like this one that says, I have a plan for you and I love you. But, but this one that says, you, you shall uh, not commit adultery, I don't like that one. I- I'm not going to believe that one. We, we, become, we become judges of God's Word instead of letting God's Word judge us. The truth of the matter here is, you must ask yourself, if you truly believed in the Gospel, have you truly repented of your sin? Have you truly forsaken the land of Ur? Have you truly forsaken the world and all that comes with it? Have you turned from that which is familiar and comfortable and completely trusted in Christ? Are you willing to take a bold step of faith, even if it's going to cost you something, to to honor God? Any person who's not willing to take a bold step of faith, it cost Abraham to leave his land. It cost him a lot to go to Canaan, but he trusted God and God blessed him. If you're not willing to make a sacrifice, if you're not willing to pay the price to follow Christ, then as he says, then you're not, you're not, you're not fit to be my disciple. Luke chapter 14. Whoever puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not worthy to be my disciple, Jesus says. We must take God's word seriously. We must live in holiness and give ourselves to Him. The life of Abram is great. As we continue in this series, we're going to learn about, this is just the first step of Abram's journey of faith. As we continue through Genesis, you know what we're going to learn? It wasn't a one-time thing with Abram. Through the book of Genesis, he continually demonstrates that he's a man of faith. And at the end of his life, in chapter 22 of Genesis, we're going to see one of the most monumental moments of his life where he is really put to the crucible to choose between God or self. And ultimately, Abram makes the right choice. He believes in God to the very end. And that is true saving faith. It's not so much how well you begin, it's how well you finish. And Abraham's whole life is a journey of faith. Yeah, there are times he wears, but it's a whole journey of faith, and that's what it is for us as Christians. It never ends, guys. We're called to walk by faith, not by sight. We're called to believe in God and to walk. The righteous walk, they live by faith. It's not a one single solitary event. Yes, I went to the altar and I gave my life to Jesus 20 years ago. Uh, but I don't, believe in, I don't believe in Him in all these other areas of my life. No, life, it is a life of faith, a continual walk of faith. It never ends faith. It is living, it's active, and it continues. That's the faith of Abraham, and that's the faith of all those who are his children. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.